I want to begin by talking a bit about your upbringing and the influence you think it's had on the values that really guide your work. So in a biographical essay you wrote for the Nobel, I was reading that you were a grandchild of immigrants and that your mother really took pride in your education. Can you talk a bit about how you think that milieu and the environment during your formative years really put you on a path towards academia and science? Well, I'm not sure exactly what the influence was. I don't think anyone can really mm-hmm. evaluate what influences them. And But I certainly uh, had a lot of support from home, but it was support in a, in a very uh, nice way. It was that my parents, both because of the Depression, uh, did not go to college. Uh, so, but they had a very uh, high regard uh, for mm-hmm. my doing well in school, yeah. and they were supportive, but not supportive in the sense of telling me what to do. I think <laughs> they were a little bit um, surprised at the things I was interested in. I was always sort of interested in science. I have no idea mm-hmm. where that comes from or interested <laughs> in math. I think it has to do with the fact that I was maybe a little better in those than my other subjects. <laughs> and uh but it I I did get the sort of support that they, they liked it. They liked the fact that I was doing well in school. Mm-hmm. Uh but it wasn't sort of a pushy thing. It was more they didn't get the opportunity and now my brothers and I did have this opportunity. Yeah, and what about mentorship? So, you know, as you became more and more interested in science, did you have any professor or any class that was really influential for you? Yes and no. (laughs) That's with most answers. So, first of all, there were people that, uh, when I was going to college, uh, impressed me. Uh, I was mm-hmm. excited about uh, what they did. Uh, I had a, uh, my, I think my very first class at Harvard was uh, the second year calculus class mm-hmm. by uh, Jerry Kasdan. And he, his opening lecture just sort of opened up worlds. It was a wonderful thing. But I'm not so sure if the message was exactly, you know, do well in 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 your classes. Mm. His first words, as I remember them, were, "There is no textbook, but I've ri- written out a series of notes uh, this summer in a cafe in Paris." And I think <laughs> listening to that was just the most wonderful news in the world. That you could do things in academia, but you could do them in a cafe in Paris. Uh, and I, I was very impressed with that. But it was also that he he had a wonderful way about him. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually saw him a couple of years ago, and we talked about this. I, but he had he said, "I know that you understand mm-hmm. and know a lot of different things about math, but yeah. I want you to really understand and to really know them." Mm-hmm. And he gave us an example, a wonderful example. That was, I, I know that you know that a negative times a negative is a positive. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure you really believe 
one example, he gave a couple, but one example was he said, I play poker every week. I lose $7 every time I play. If I skip two weeks, I'm $14 ahead. And I think that in the combination of the Paris Cafe got me very interested in that course. I, there were other people as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Woody Hastings, who died a few years ago uh, in the biology department, was someone who uh, I, it made a very big impression on me uh, because he went out of his way to be helpful. I had mm-hmm. uh, been a swimmer. Uh, I was on the swimming team. And in my junior year, I took his cell physiology course. And I... Mm-hmm realized that with swimming practice, I was never going to be able to read any of the papers Mm. because the library was going to be closed. Mm -hmm. And I went to his office, and I told him about the problem. And he said, oh, no, you absolutely need a key to the library. Come with me. And he got up from behind his desk in his fourth floor office and walked Mm. down four flights of stairs to the biology department office and said to one of the people there, please give him a key. And the fact that someone would just out of the blue get up Mm -hmm. and go do this for this nobody who happened to walk into his office, that was very kind. And over the years, we continued to to talk uh, periodically, especially as I got interested in Mm -hmm. Um, green fluorescent protein and other things, and I knew of his terrific work on bioluminescence. So there were people that impressed me, um, but not in the sense of, oh, I should now go in this area or Mm -hmm. I should do this. In fact, Mm -hmm. when I was an undergraduate, I uh, spent the summer after my junior year doing research and it was horrible. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I had a, a very um, stupid uh, impression that real scientists didn't ask for help because if you asked for help, that meant you weren't any good. And so I'm pretty sure I didn't ask for much help. In any case, the experiments all failed. And at the end of my time at uh, at Harvard, I or actually at the end of my junior year, mm-hmm. I just decided, well, now I have proof. <laughs> I have failed over the summer to do work in the laboratory. Uh, I am just not destined to be a scientist. Mm. So, in fact, I had basically crossed that off my list as uh, a career choice. And when I graduated, I did a bunch of little jobs, and I, uh, fortunately, uh, one of the jobs I got was teaching mm-hmm. at a, um, a private high school, uh-huh. and I made a uh, important discovery when I was doing my teaching, and that was mm-hmm. that high school students have summer vacation, but high school teachers have to find a job. And so the job uh, that I happened to get was working in a laboratory, and the experiments worked out. <laughs> By this time, I had learned to ask people for help, and I had some ideas of my own, and uh, 
actually that work uh, for the first summer led to my first publication and uh, started me back uh, in in science. Uh, but uh, it was actually at that point that people uh, were much more of mentors to me. When I mm-hmm. went to graduate school, I, I, went, I was in the physiology department, uh, which is located at the Harvard Medical School, but it's part of GSAS. And I uh, did my PhD uh, with Bob Perlman, who mm-hmm. is one of one and remains one of the kindest people I've ever met. Mm-hmm. And at that point, uh, I had a desk outside his office, and I think I pestered him daily about <laughs> ideas or questions and things like that. And he was so supportive, which is exactly what I felt I needed as a beginning scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it it was sort of perfect. When I went to do my postdoctoral work, which was with Sidney Brenner in mm-hmm. England, it was really the opposite. Not that he wasn't helpful. It's just that Sidney believed that you should just do what you were going to do. And he had his own experiments to do. So we must have talked about once a year. And I was completely free to do whatever I wanted to do. And I Mm -hmm. had great colleagues to interact with. And so Sydney gave me the freedom to sort of try things out on my own, which was also a really wonderful step to have. Mm -hmm. And then I'd say that the, the... the final sort of mentor, and I'll have one other comment, but my final mentor sure. was the person I did most of the research with when I was doing my postdoc, and that was mm-hmm. the man who fortunately died a few months ago, John Solston. And John is probably the most moral person I have ever met. He has a, had a deep concern about mm-hmm. how science was used, how people should share their data, how mm-hmm. uh, what it, it meant to be a scientist in the world. And he had a profound effect about uh, how I view science and how people should care uh, for mm-hmm. one another within science. So he, he was terrific. But to go back to your question, what was the, probably the greatest influence on me as a scientist, Mm -hmm. I actually think that it was the final exams in the (laughs) humanities and social science courses I took as an (laughs) undergraduate. And the reason for that is they, at least in my memory of it, they never really asked for us to give back information. It was sort of assumed you read the books, you read the articles, you had the information, Mm -hmm. that you knew something about it. And then they'd ask you a question out of left field. Mm -hmm. And you had to take all of the data, all the stuff that you'd read, Mm -hmm. and mix it in a completely new way and come up with an answer. And I think that training to basically Mm -hmm. take information and massage mm-hmm. it and to reorganize it and to think about it and try to make connections between things. Wow. I think that actually was wonderful training. Wow. Incredible. 
That's amazing. And so, I mean, clearly the training worked, and here you are. And I was well. I, I don't know if that was the reason that things <laughs> worked, but that's nonetheless how I feel. Nonetheless, about it. right here you are. And I was, you know, I was reading the incredibly hilarious story of when you found out that you won the Nobel Prize and the fact that you actually slept through the phone call. Can you recount that story? I think it's completely hilarious. Well, it, it, there's a little bit before this, which is maybe not as good, but nonetheless, this is the story. Um, the night before, I had gotten an email from a uh, a student asking uh, if he could have a PDF copy of my article about green fluorescent protein. Mm-hmm. And I sent it to him, and in listening in 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 his email it had a, a comment where he said my friends and i are thinking about who's going to win the chemistry nobel prize tomorrow mm-hmm. and we believe it's going to be shimamura and chen mm-hmm. but my name's not on his list <laughs> that was sort of a funny thing to to get but nonetheless i uh <laughs> I I I went to bed, and mm-hmm. uh, when we uh, uh, when uh, we live in an apartment building, mm-hmm. and it means that we sometimes hear other people's phone calls <laughs> if, <laughs> if they're noisy. Uh, not always, not not often, but sometimes. Mm-hmm. And in any case, our bedroom is a couple of closed doors away from where our phone was, which was in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I may have also inadvertently uh, turned down the ring on the phone uh, the night before. In any case, uh, I missed the phone call. I uh, woke up at 10 after 6 in the morning and realized that uh, that the Nobel Committee had already Mm-hmm. announced who was mm-hmm. the winner, and I was uh, curious to see who that would be. I happened to have my laptop uh, next <laughs> to the bed, and I had, I opened it up. <laughs> I went to the Nobel Prize website and found my name, and I'm not, uh, I, I, I'm not embarrassed enough not to admit to the fact that I would go back periodically over the next couple of weeks to see if it was a race. To see if that was a mistake, <laughs> but I actually yeah, found out by looking at the laptop. Wow! So, wow! Sort of fun. And then I realized that it wasn't my neighbor's phone that was ringing that I heard faintly uh, through the, the closed doors. It was actually my own phone, and I and sort of was on the phone for several hours after that talking wow. to the neighbors. Wow! Wow! I, I also finally I want to ask you. I was reading that. Your paper on GFP actually incorporated some of the unpublished work from your wife, who was teaching at Columbia at that time. And then, hilariously, she laid out very particular requirements for you to be able to use that. Can you talk about that? Because I think, one, it's very humorous how you two came to that agreement. But also, number two, it's really, I think, important, that kind of crosstalk and collaboration necessary to make science great. So the... You know, it's, it's sort of funny. After you get a Nobel Prize, 
the, the work is always viewed as, oh, yeah, that was maybe an obvious reason to, for a prize. But um, it wasn't always uh, accepted or, or uh, the various implications of the work were not always accepted so quickly. Mm-hmm. There were some organis- uh, people working on some organisms that thought, oh, GFE is not going to work in our organism. And then several years later, somebody, <laughs> of course, worked it, did it, and then it worked quite nicely. But yeah. we uh, actually let know that we had this, what we thought was a very useful tool to mark cells um, and uh, to look at gene expression and several other uses that we suggested could happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually told people about this, um, I'd say about uh, four months before the paper came out. And so people were, uh, some people got very excited about it, and they went and they used uh, GFP in their own experiments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and probably the most important experiment, actually was the next paper to come out on GFP, was the paper by my wife in mm-hmm. which she looked what we had done. The simple way of thinking about it is that genes have two parts, the part that says what should be made and the part that controls it by saying where, when, and how much. Mm-hmm. We had taken that where, when, and how much part and used that to express GFP. So wherever a gene was turned on, we would be able to see the fluorescent protein. Mm -hmm. But another thing one could do is to take both parts of the gene. Mm -hmm. That controlling region, the part that encodes for a protein, let's say, and then add the part encoding for GFP. Now Mm -hmm. you've latched... GFP is a lantern onto the other protein. So wherever that protein goes, you can see it. And that's what Mm -hmm. my wife did. That was the experiment that she did. Mm -hmm. And she was doing that while we were writing up the original paper. And several other people had also written me and said, you know, this stuff works in our hands too. So that was always good to have. And so I wrote everyone and I said, look, we're about to publish the paper. Will you give me permission mm-hmm. to cite your work? And uh, all of these people said, of course, you gave us the samples before you published. Yes, you can. And so that's a footnote in the paper. Mm-hmm. My wife wrote me a wonderful letter Aww. saying that we could do this. Mm-hmm. but only uh, if certain conditions were met, mm-hmm. the conditions being that I was supposed to prepare coffee every <laughs> Saturday morning at 8.30 for two months. I was supposed <laughs> to produce some sort of fancy French dinner, and then I was supposed to take out the garbage <laughs> nightly for a month. And, in, and, and, and everything. But I have to admit that the letter, which I love, showing in my seminars, Mm -hmm. uh, that letter was never sent to the journal. That was just sent to me. (laughs) She sent a very innocuous one saying, yeah, you can do this. (laughs) But she didn't, uh, 
but but that was the letter she sent to me. So that's that's what I usually share. Uh, and we're still together. So. 